Welcome. You're listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary? You can visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give for more information on ways to give. That's thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the message. I think I would have to say that my favorite story in the Bible when I was a young boy was the story of Samson. I don't know how familiar you are with that story, but as a kid growing up idolizing Rocky and Rambo and Conan the Barbarian, the story of Samson was right up my alley. I may have been bored by the rest of the Bible, but not by the story of Samson. Loved it. Anybody who could kill a thousand bad guys with the jawbone of a donkey had my respect. He was like the, the John Wick of the Old Testament, and I wanted to be just like him when I grew up. But coming in a close second was the story of David and Goliath. I mean, it's the classic underdog story. David was small. He was underwhelming. He was young. He was inexperienced. But he was fearless. I wanted to be like that. He was ready to take on the biggest member of Israel's fiercest army. Goliath, they say, was not only a man of war, but he stood nearly nine feet tall. He was this mighty man of war, and David was just this little boy. And the fact that he was even willing to go up against this monster uh, was a sign of remarkable fearlessness. I wanted that. I wanted to be like that. Um, I wanted to be like David when I was a boy. I wanted to be the one who stood up to the bullies, the one who fought for those who were afraid. But even as a grown man, I still want to be like David, (laughs) I still want to have the kind of fearless, against all odds courage that David had. I mean, I want to be the one who saves the day. I still do. When those I love are in trouble, I want to be the one who rescues them. When I'm feeling beat up, I want to rise up and prove all the haters wrong. I I want to be the solution to problems. I want to fix things. I want to fix others. I want to fix myself. I want to fix it. I want to make it right. I want to fix problems. I want people to think of me as an overcomer, a fighter, a conqueror, one who doesn't go down without a fight. I mean, who doesn't? Who wants to be thought of as weak, afraid, someone who quits when things get hard? There's actually one person. (laughs) I was reminded of this yesterday as I was preparing. You know, I'm a Seinfeld junkie, okay? And there's this one episode in Seinfeld where uh, Elaine comes to Jerry's house and George is sitting on the couch and Elaine really wants to quit her job. And so Jerry says, just quit. And George, as you know, who's remarkably neurotic, is sitting on the couch um, and he says, yeah, quit. I'm a great quitter. It's one of the few things I do well. I come from a long line of quitters. My father was a quitter. My grandfather was a quitter. I was raised to give up. Okay, so there is there is one who doesn't care if people think that he's weak and that he quits. But I'm not one of them. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if you know who that is. He's a writer. He's written a number of remarkable books and someone I respect very much. Uh, wrote a book called David and Goliath a number of years ago. Um, he's a, he's a Christian, but he doesn't write Christian books. He's just a, he's a thinker, uh, and he's provocative and he's incredibly insightful. 
And he wrote a book called David and Goliath, and the subtitle was Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And he makes the point, I think rightly, in the book that weakness is our greatest strength. I, I like Gladwell a lot, and, and the points that he makes are true. And in many ways, his book echoes what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, and Gladwell builds on that um, as he retells the story of David and Goliath. But to read this story as if it was primarily about us and how we can face our fears and harness our weaknesses to propel us forward is to miss the point of this story. That's not what this story is about. That's what I grew up believing this story was about. It's one of the reasons I wanted to be like David. Like I just said, he was fearless. He was courageous. I wanted to be fearless. I wanted to be courageous. I identified with David in the story. That's who I wanted to be like. But reading the story as if it's primarily about us and how we can slay the giants in our lives, if we can simply muster up the faith and courage that David had, is not liberating. It may sound empowering. It may sound inspiring. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not liberating. In fact, it's, it's burdensome. It actually plays right into our deepest fear. If I'm not strong, I'm doomed. If I don't hold it all together, I'm in trouble. If I don't do it all right, my life will end up all wrong. That's something that we fear. Our lives prove that we fear those things. Everywhere we go, we're bombarded, bombarded with the idea that we can do anything, that we can accomplish anything with persistence and drive, that the only thing getting in our way from living the dream is ourselves. We hear that in a variety of different ways. Everywhere we go. If you want your life to be better, work harder. When things go south, we're told to be strong, to live strong. When the going gets tough, the tough get going, they say. So yesterday I, for fun, uh, Googled, I don't remember exactly what it was that I Googled, but it was something along the lines of, uh, you can accomplish anything quotes. Okay. And there's a, of course, a handful of them that I feel I must share with you guys. Um, here's just a few of them. Okay. You never know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice you have. Smile and let everyone know that you're stronger today than you were yesterday. Be bigger than your fears and you will defeat your giants. You have to be at your strongest when you're feeling the weakest. You were given these obstacles so that you could see you have the strength to overcome them. You are never given a dream without also being given the power to make it come true. (laughs) I'm like, I was dreaming from the time I was a little boy that I would be the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And there was nothing that I could do. Okay, I couldn't work hard. I couldn't make myself grow. Um, so, I mean, we laugh because this is so silly when you stop and think about it, this stuff. It sounds inspiring like it's supposed to inspire us to reach greater heights and do bigger things. But it also puts a tremendous amount of pressure on us. A ton of pressure. Um, this approach to life is a joke. It's an enslaving joke. It all sounds inspiring until life happens. 
until bad things happen, until things outside of our control happen. I mean, life has a way of reminding us again and again that we're not the rock, solid, steady overcomers that we like to think we are. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who's just had a hellish three years, hellish. Um, lost his job, got into legal trouble, got divorced, and in the midst of all of that, came down with throat cancer. Just finished treatment uh, 77 days ago, and he's recovering. You'll meet him one day. I think he's going to try to come here in August. Um, he wants to come visit so bad. A uh, former pastor and a good friend, someone who reached out to me when I was at my lowest, invited me to come to his church and speak and preach when nobody was inviting me to come to their church and preach and speak at that time. So he's a, he's a friend for life. And he was reminding me this past week, he was an athlete, and he was reminding me this past week of just how much cancer in particular, but all this other stuff also, has reminded him of how small he is, how dependent on God he is. It's so easy for us to begin believing that we're bigger than we are, stronger than we are, and then life happens, knocks us down and reminds us that we're small, that we're not as capable as we like to think we are. Um, I mean, life has a way of reminding us again and again and again that we're not as steady we're not as solid. We're not as powerful as we like to think we are. I mean, what happens, for instance, when all your efforts to love your spouse fall flat and he leaves anyway? Or she ignores you anyway? Can you muscle your way out of feeling rejected? Can you just think positive thoughts and the rejection feeling will go away? Does thinking positively help you feel less unwanted when you experience rejection like that? Um, I dare you to say, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger to the mom whose son won't see her. Or to the dad whose daughter won't talk to him. Or the teenage girl who hates the way she looks. See how that goes over. Um... What about when no matter how hard we try, we can't get past our disappointments or escape our fears or stop fretting over finances? What happens when no amount of optimistic and forward thinking can overcome the regret you feel down deep? We've all experienced that. I mean, have you ever tried to strong arm yourself out of your insecurities? Have you ever tried to talk yourself out of feeling lonely or insignificant? I mean, all of these platitudes that I read a few minutes ago, these things fall flat when life happens, when crisis hits, when tragedy strikes, when cancer comes, when he leaves or she leaves, when he won't, when he won't return your phone call or, or you don't get the job you want or you run out of money or whatever the case may be, when life happens, when your marriage is just going south and you don't know how to fix it, you know, I'm not even sure you want to fix it. Um, so all of those platitudes about being all that you can be and you can make your dreams come true and all of that stuff is just burdensome nonsense. Doesn't ring true to life. It may get you through a moment when you are feeling low, but it won't carry you through life. It can't carry you through life. It doesn't have the power to carry you through life. So be all you can be. <laughs> 
I mean, most of the time, I'm just barely hanging on. Be all you can be doesn't make me feel stronger. It makes me feel more pressure to be something that I'm currently not, to do something that I'm currently unable to do, to control something that is beyond my control. The truth is, like I said last week, I need a savior who saves the faithless and the weak, not the faithful and strong. Um, if my strength is my hope, then I'm, I'm screwed, okay? If, if that's where my hope ultimately rests in my strength, my ability to overcome, um, my being all that I can be, accomplishing what I think will make me happy, securing those things that I think will make me feel content and free and satisfied once and for all. If this is riding on me, if my hope in life is riding on my shoulders, I'm in trouble. My shoulders aren't that big. I'm not that strong. The bottom line is that we get no lasting hope and comfort from this story, the story of David and Goliath, if we make it about us and what we need to do to experience victory in our lives. So as much as I appreciate the remarkable insights that Malcolm Gladwell points out in that book, in my opinion, the overarching thesis is uh, misguided. Um, it leads us down a, a different path. And it's not just him, my gosh. I mean, I, I can remember growing up in church and hearing this story in Sunday school and on Sunday mornings so many times. And the, the moral of the story was be like David. David, with great faith and courage and with God as his co-pilot, was able to stand in the gap and fight for those who were afraid. Be like David. I think I remember telling you a story a long time ago. Most of you probably don't remember it. But uh, when I was in college, I was a youth pastor at a, at a church. Um, and there was a guest speaker on this particular Sunday morning. As, and as we were walking through the doors, uh, the the greeters who were handing out the programs for the morning also handed out a little plastic sword, you know, the kind that goes through like your oranges in a cocktail or whatever. Um, maybe not oranges in a cocktail, maybe lemon in your water. Okay, whatever. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, those little plastic swords. Uh, that's, that's for all the Baptists in the room. Uh, anyway, uh, so... Um, and so, you know, we weren't sure why we were all getting this sword, and the guest preacher preached a sermon on David and Goliath. And of course, the thesis of his sermon was, you know, with the faith and courage of David, you too can slay the giants in your life, whatever they may be. And at one point in the sermon, he had us all stand up and grab the little swords that we were given. And we all were, these are, this is a room full of grownups now, okay? We were all supposed to take the sword and go like this and sort of chant something about slaying our giants. Um, that's kind of what I heard growing up. My whole life when it came to this story, I said at the beginning, I was inspired just by reading the story to be like this. And then that uh, sort of inspiration was affirmed by the, the way this was taught to me growing up. Um, be like David. That's who you need to be like. Um, but the bottom line, as I said, is that we get no lasting hope. We get no lasting comfort if we make this story about us and what we need to do or what we can do to experience victory in our lives. It's not just a bad interpretation, it's a cruel interpretation. 
It's like telling a one-legged person to run faster and jump higher. It's like telling someone who's drowning to paddle harder and kick faster. It's not just bad, it's cruel. This story is meant to relieve us, not to put pressure on us. It's meant to give us hope, not to hype us up to be all that we can be. See, here's what we need to know, and this is the key to unlock the truth of this story. Here's what we need to know. We're not supposed to identify with David in this story. That's not who we're supposed to identify with. We're supposed to identify with the Israelites who shrunk back in fear and unbelief. That's who we are. None of us are the brave David going out to meet the big giant. We're the seasoned soldiers who refuse in fear and unbelief to go into the battlefield for fear that we might be killed. We're the ones shrinking back. We're the ones cowering back in fear. You see, David, the role of David in this story is a very specific role, and it's reserved for a very specific person. David's role in this story is to point us to the one who stood in the gap and gained victory for us, conquered for us, defeated the enemy of sin and death for us, who won freedom for us. Because without reference to Jesus, and make no mistake about it, Jesus isn't just someone that we see once we get to the New Testament. As I said when I opened this series, quoting Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible, um, that every story from Genesis to Revelation whispers his name. We're introduced to Jesus first and foremost in Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at two weeks ago, when God makes this, this promise That one day the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Adam and Eve didn't know what he was talking about at that time. But we look back now and know exactly what God was promising. We know exactly who he was talking about. So it's not like Jesus is absent from this story. In fact, this story has been recorded in the way that it's been recorded to point us specifically to him. To him and what he did. Because like I said, without reference to Jesus, this is the way the story is preached. Sometimes God will put a Goliath in your life so that you can discover the David within. Because with faith like David, you too can slay the giants in your life. Without reference to Jesus, that's the really the only interpretation we can give to this story. And that's the one that is most often given. But as soon as we ask, how does this story point to Jesus we begin to see the same storyline in a very different light. We begin to see a picture of grace. Um, This story tells us, and I didn't read this part, but the story tells us that the Israelites refuse to go up against Goliath. They can't do it. They're too afraid. They need someone to fight for them. They need a substitute. They need someone who's brave enough and courageous enough to fight their fiercest enemy because they're too scared. They can't do it. They know they can't do it. There's no one in that army that believes they can go up against Goliath and win. Much like uh, there is no Heat fan in this world that believes we can go to Boston tomorrow night and win the game, okay? Boston is our Goliath. I'm just hoping that Jimmy Butler is our David, but never mind. Um, They need a substitute, okay? So this teenage shepherd boy uh, who was sent by his father to bring food and supplies to his brothers, his older brothers who were fighting the war, 
um, this teenage shepherd boy shows up, David shows up, and he sees Goliath standing in the valley, shouting vulgarities at God's people, the, Israel, the Israelite army, mocking them, taunting them, uh, beckoning one brave person to come and fight him. And the deal was that if you, if you send someone to fight Goliath and that person wins, you win the war. We don't have to fight another battle. We don't have to all die here. Uh, you send somebody. Now, if that person you send loses, we win the war. So the entire battle boiled down to one fight. And nobody, nobody on the Israelite side wanted to, wanted to do that. And so David shows up, this, this teenage boy. He's watching what's going on. He's hearing what Goliath is saying. And he looks at his brothers and he's like, well, why isn't anybody going down there to fight this guy? I mean, he's, he's taunting you. And his brother's like, okay, little boy, you have no idea what you're talking about. There's no one on this side that can beat that guy. I mean, we're, we're not exactly sure what we're going to do here. We're trying to strategize, but the, no one from here is going to fight that guy because we can't win. And so David says, well, I'll fight him. And, you know, everybody's sort of chuckling, laughing, like, okay, you can fight him. I mean, you're what, five foot two, you're 14 years old, uh, you've never fought in a battle before, you're going to go fight? Okay, fine. And David says, no, I'm serious. And so he goes to see King Saul. And I read you the section in which he goes to see King Saul, and Saul's like, what are you talking about, man? Well, finally, after David being very persuasive, finally convinces Saul uh, that I can do it. I mean, I have fought a lion, a tiger, and a bear, oh my, and I can beat this guy. Um, and so Saul's like, you know, what do we got to lose? <laughs> I mean, seriously, no one else is willing to do it. Fine, you want to go? Go here, take my armor. Well, David puts on the armor. He's like, I can't wear this. I mean, Saul was a big guy. He was a grown man. And David was this teenage boy. And he's like, I can't wear this. I've never worn this stuff before. I can't even move in this. Let me just handle it my way. Saul's like, okay, the Lord be with you. Have fun. I'm sure that Saul is just waiting for the news to get back that, yeah, that David boy that came to you and asked to fight Goliath, he's been chopped up in a thousand pieces and he's being sent to a thousand different places. Um, but David actually stands in the gap. He goes, he fights the fight that no one was willing to fight. Um, he, this teenage shepherd boy with nothing but a slingshot steps into the valley of the shadow of death and faces God's enemy head on. But as he goes on their behalf, he goes virtually as a sacrificial lamb. I mean, he's too weak to win. Nobody believes he can win. Nobody but surprisingly, God uses David's weakness, his smallness, his insignificance to destroy the giant. And David becomes Israel's rescuer. His victory is credited to them. They get the fruit of winning the battle even though they didn't lift a finger. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, what is this story really about? Is it about something so small as you and I overcoming the giant of lust or pride or, you know, uh, worry in our lives? I mean, is that it? Is that the size of this story or is it bigger than that? Is it pointing to someone more important than that? See, years later, another underdog would stand in the valley of the shadow of death for his people and be their substitute. Like the Israelites... The, the men who were afraid to go up against Goliath, we shrink back, just like them. 
That's who we're supposed to relate to in this story. We shrink back. We're, we're afraid to deal with the things that threaten us. We suppress our pain, thinking it will go away if we just ignore it. We refuse to own up to our failures. We pretend that the past doesn't matter or that the past didn't happen. We hide behind the patchwork quilt of our own goodness and self-betterment projects, thinking that, that that will get rid of the guilt we feel, that that will get rid of the regrets that we have. We're just like them. We're all of us are just like them. But on the cross, Jesus faced all of that stuff head on, just like David. He went, nobody believed he could win. He went, and by weakness and defeat, he won the victor's crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He is the one, not us. He's the overcomer. He's the conqueror. You know, if I hear one more time that verse, it says we are more than conquerors. I, I, interpreted the way it's typically interpreted, I, I'm going to throw up in my mouth, okay? Um, we take so many verses and passages in the Bible out of context and make them about us and what we can do, how empowered we can be, what we can accomplish. There was one conqueror, one We are hidden in him. We are clothed and cloaked in his righteousness. But make no mistake about it. We're not the conqueror. Okay. He is. Um, And unlike us, Jesus doesn't simply identify felt needs. He doesn't simply offer band-aid solutions to gaping wounds. He gets to the heart of the matter. He knows what you need. He knows your sins and your secrets, your fears and your insecurities. He knows your deepest aches. He knows what discourages you. He knows you. He understands you. Your hopes and fears, your dreams and longings are not anonymous to Jesus. He is, as Isaiah says, a wonderful counselor, a wonderful counselor. He counsels wonder to those places in our lives where we most desperately need comfort and help. He is the one who bleeds with you. He is the one who knows what it feels like to be abandoned, to be betrayed, to be unjustly accused, to be misunderstood, to be rejected, to be unloved. I think one of the big temptations, at least it is for me, is to think that Jesus can't really relate to me. You know, he wasn't married. He didn't have kids. Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't live in the same era that I live in. The temptations weren't the same, this, that, and the other. We have a thousand different ways that we try to rationalize the fact that I know the Bible says Jesus understands me and he's my great high priest who gets me, but does he really? But think about behind and underneath all of the circumstances you face that may be unique to our time and your life. Think about what exists underneath all that stuff. The the, the feeling of being rejected, the feeling of being abandoned, stabbed in the back by friends, um, betrayed, uh, misunderstood. Regardless of what era we live in or what your life looks like, we all know what that stuff feels like. That's the deep stuff. That's the debilitating stuff, the paralyzing stuff. Well, that's, Jesus understands that. 
I mean, you don't have to read the Gospels more than a couple chapters in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see that Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be misunderstood, to be pushed away, to be rejected, um, to be betrayed, to feel unloved, um, to feel... To feel like you're all alone. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. I mean, man, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying. All he, all he had, makes one request to his disciples. Listen, I'm getting ready to face hell on earth, literally. And all I'm asking you guys to do, my buddies, my pals, is to just, I'm going to go talk to my father over here. Just pray for me. Just please pray for me. Well, he comes back after his prayer, and they're all sound asleep. They couldn't even pray for this. This friend of theirs that they said they would never deny They would never betray. They would never walk away from. I mean, Peter was very bold in saying, I will go to my death with you. If they they kill you, they're going to have to go through me first. It wasn't hours later before he was denying that he even knew him. We're like that. That's who we're like. Uh, Like the Israelites. That's us. That's us. Jesus, on the other hand, faced all of that stuff. He knows what it feels like. He's the one, as I said, who who bleeds with you. He understands what it feels like to be abandoned, to be betrayed. He is the one who takes all of your guilt and shame down into the sea of God's forgotten memory. He does that. As Robert Capon puts it, he takes all of our sin down into the forgettery of his death all of it. He is the one who promises to never leave you, to never stop loving you, no matter what. In my conversation with my friend that I was having a couple days ago, the one who has cancers in, re- in recovery now, um, we were talking about that. He was just giving testimony to how impressed he has been with God through all of this. He says, you know, we all have shreds of remnants of conditionality inside of us when we think about God. Like if I really screw up, God is upset, he's angry, he's disappointed, blah, 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 that his love for me wanes when I fail. And he said, this whole thing, this guy, it was so good for him to say this and it was so good for me to hear it. But he said, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, my, my body when I was going through treatment was just wilting. He said, I wasn't praying. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't going to church. I wasn't going to my recovery group. I wasn't doing all of the things that we're told to do in order to ensure that we stay close to God. I was barely surviving And God never left, never left. He stuck with me. So he said, all of this stuff has just sort of exposed the fact that I still believe God's love is conditional to some degree. Like how could God still be caring for me when I'm not doing all the things, when I'm not doing all the stuff? How could it that God would still be with me? He said, the only prayers that he prayed when he did pray, which was virtually never, was uh, frustration prayers to God. Why? I mean, how much more can I take? How long, oh Lord? How long? It feels like you're ignoring me. Why? Why am I going through this? The stuff that we typically ask um, when we're going through things like that, when we're suffering. Uh, Jenna, my daughter, and I were talking the other day 
And uh, she came in from the porch. She's been reading this book, this memoir. Um, and she came in and sat down in the chair and she said, what is it about God that you love the most? Great question. And I had to stop and think about it for a minute. Uh, and I said, uh, well, that changes from time to time. Ask me in two weeks and it may be something different. But most recently, I think what I love the most about God is his friendship, his loyalty, his faithfulness to me. I mean, I have, as I've told you many times, I've let go of God a thousand times. He's never once let go of me. That kind of, especially when you lose friends, when you lose family members, when people you love walk out of your life or you walk out of their lives and, and you're dealing with the ache of a broken relationship and, and you're reminded that at the end, a lot of us are fickle. Most of us are fickle. Uh, Jesus isn't. God is not fickle when it comes to his friendship with us. He's with us. And he, and I, I told Jenna this, uh, in that conversation, I think we, at least I grew up believing um, that I was capable of disappointing God. I think most of us probably grew up thinking that. I mean, we're certainly capable of disappointing our mothers, our fathers, our friends, our spouses. Uh, so we therefore must be capable of disappointing God. But here's what that posture ignores. If you're a Christian, you are clothed cloaked in an irremovable suit of forgiveness. You are clothed in a cloak of righteousness, not your righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And that means that God the Father can no more be disappointed in you than he is in Jesus. We are hidden with Christ, the Bible says, hidden in Christ. So while we experience the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of life in this world and we experience the consequences of our foolish decisions and we suffer those consequences and while things may come and things may go and people may come and people may go, uh, what the Bible makes very clear is that God sticks and stays. It's his friendship. It's his friendship that has meant so much to me, uh, especially recently. Um, he is the one who accepts you when everyone else rejects you. The one who holds on to you when you let go. The one who has already forgiven you for everything you've ever done and everything you'll ever do, ever. I think we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that Jesus is a good example for us. We model our lives off Jesus. We wear the bracelets or we used to. What would Jesus do? Um, you know, and we sort of, we, we see Jesus as this remarkable example, someone we should aspire to be like. And then we reduce Christianity to nothing more and nothing less than following the example of Jesus. Be like Jesus, become like Jesus. And so sermons are preached and books are read, all instructing us on how to be like Jesus, become like Jesus, follow Jesus. Um, but Jesus is not simply a good example. I mean, if that's all he was, we'd be screwed. I mean, anybody who wants to stand up and confess to the entire group here that you are like Jesus, feel free to do it. I'll wait. Okay. Um, cause I, I mean, I've said this before, but my life doesn't look like Jesus. My life looks like someone who needs Jesus. Those are two different things. 
Okay, so he's not simply a good example. He's a person who invites weary, burdened, broken, guilty, failing people to find love and life, to find forgiveness and a future, grace and mercy, hope, love. That's the story. That's the story of David and Goliath. Not the defeat your giants by being courageous. That's, that's not it. That's, like I said, David in the story is not even who we're supposed to identify with. We're supposed to identify with, as much as we would like to identify with David, we're supposed to identify with these guys. These guys. The role that David plays in the story is reserved for one and only one. That's, that's the story that Jesus wins for losers. He, he is strong for the weak. He is righteous for the sinner. He is faithful to the fearful. He is, he is forgiveness to the failed. That's the story. That's who he is. So if you are a guilty, weak, fearful, failed person, you are God's cup of tea. Jesus is for you. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.